All right, we are back. We were talking medicine in our last segment. And sometimes, usually the top of our third segment, we like to do obituaries. And so, well, this one fits perfectly. It's a medical obituary concerning Donald A. Henderson, a name you may not be familiar with, but the guy who, more than anyone else, is responsible for medical science eliminating the only disease the medical science has ever managed to eliminate from the face of the earth. When the World Health Organization tasked American epidemiologist Donald Henderson with eradicating smallpox in 1967, the endeavor was seen as a medical moonshot. At that time, the Red Plague killed more than 2 million people a year in Africa, Asia, and South America, and doctors, it should be noted, had never before succeeded in wiping out any disease. But just 13 years after handing Henderson this seemingly quixotic mission, the World Health Organization declared that the deadly smallpox virus had been completely eradicated. It is one of the greatest triumphs in medical history. Turns out that after Dr. Henderson completed his medical training in Ohio and New York, he joined the CDC and rose to become head of the agency's Epidemic Intelligence Division. He later said, I was never going to be a practicing doc. It was just too dull, really. Now, it should be noted that it was believed almost universally that the only way we were going to get rid of smallpox was to vaccinate everybody in the world. Henderson used a different approach. Rather than try to inoculate whole populations, he and his small team had doctors and health officials vaccinate everyone who'd been in contact with smallpox patients and then immunize everyone who'd been in contact with those people. Thanks to this ring vaccination and a new freeze-dried vaccine which could withstand tropical heat, the world's last smallpox patient was diagnosed in 1977. We note with some relief that the anti-vax movement was uh, not on the scene back at that time, or we probably might have smallpox still with us. Anyway, a salute to Dr. Donald A. Henderson. Well done, sir. All right, another medically related item, we have this. Um, Some people suspect that we crave carbohydrates. They are hard to resist. But why are they so hard to resist? There's some evidence now that carbohydrate-rich foods may have a unique taste, but this is creating some problems in analysis because when we think of tastes, we think of the four primary tastes, salty, sweet, sour, and bitter. We were taught that back in grade school. And also umami, which is the taste associated with monosodium glutamate. It joined the list back in 2009. And by the way, as an aside, I made this aside before, but I can't resist doing it again, MSG cannot be the villain it was made out to be by lawyers back in the 1970s when they called it Chinese restaurant syndrome and sued everybody. If glutamate is such a good thing, you have receptors on your tongue (laughs) to tell you, yes, eat more of this. Well, it just can't be a toxic substance. But at any rate, even if we cite five things as, uh, you know, taste receptors on your tongue, this does not explain why we might like carbohydrates. People have pointed out that we may have overlooked the possibility that we might be able to taste them specifically, but it's always been assumed up till now that because enzymes in our saliva break starch down into simple sugars, we just basically like to eat starch because, well, it tastes sweet once it breaks down. Well, that's probably not the whole story. And to investigate this, they've been giving volunteers different carbohydrate solutions, and they have found that people were able to detect a starch-like taste from 
carbohydrate chains of various lengths. Now to make the grade on this, uh, tastes need to be recognizable, have their own set of tongue receptors, and trigger some kind of beneficial response. And although it's been pointed out that every culture, virtually every culture on the earth anyway, uh, has, a, has a liking for starch, it's still not exactly clear what is going on, how we know that we like starch. And we do like it a lot. Researcher Julian Lim at Oregon State University notes that sugar tastes great in the short term, but if you're offered chocolate and bread, you'd choose bread as your daily staple. Well, most people. And then another food-related story, we have this. It may seem hard to believe, maybe impossible, but America has too much cheese. That's a quote from Vanessa Wong in BuzzFeed.com. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced last week it's spending $20 million to purchase 11 million pounds of surplus cheese to help ease a massive cheese glut that's eating up dairy industry profits. Some 1.25 billion pounds of cheese are currently locked away in cold storage waiting to be bought. This is the biggest surplus in 30 years. The trouble here began two years ago when farmers increased their herds to take advantage of high milk prices, which have since collapsed. Increased milk production in Europe and a strong dollar also made U.S. dairy products less attractive to foreign buyers, causing unwanted cheddar, feta, and Monterey Jack to pile up. It's reported that the government bought cheese won't go to waste. The feds plan to donate it to food banks and pantries across the U.S. Yes, think about this a minute. The government is buying up cheese to keep the price high. The dairy industry comes out ahead. The cheese goes into cold storage, and uh, maybe it'll be donated, but what about the other 1.25 billion pounds of cheese currently being stored? Don't expect to see that in your pizza anytime soon. Speaking of stupid government spending, uh, it's pretty hard to top the Pentagon in that department. We reported last week about this rumor about $6.5 trillion being missing from the Pentagon, and the Sacramento Bee decided to weigh in on this topic in an editorial. And they note, according to a report from the Defense Department's Office of Inspector General, the Army, quote, materially misstated, unquote, or simply made up accounting figures totaling $6.5 trillion for 2015. These errors eclipse the DOD's total budget, which is only $573 billion. The IG's report said DOD and Army managers could not rely on the data in their accounting systems when making management and resource decisions. In some cases, the Army simply did not maintain the required data. In other cases, the data was woefully inadequate, and in some cases, the data was lost. For example, noted the B, the Defense Finance and Accounting Services, which performs accounting functions for the DOD, was unable to produce accurate year-end financial statements for the Army because more than 16,000 financial data files had vanished from its computer system. Abracadabra. It gets better. To fill these gaps in the financial statements, DFAS staff engaged in what some employees refer to as the grand plug. In other words, pulling numbers out of the air to make things up. The editors later go on to note that the DOD has a long history of waste and a lack of accountability. In recent years, it has wasted billions in doomed Afghanistan reconstruction efforts, spent a billion dollars to destroy $16 billion worth of obsolete and unused ammunition, and lost 
lost more than $500 million worth of weapons, aircraft, patrol boats, and equipment given to Yemen, some of which might have fallen into the hands of terrorists. The B notes, we think accurately that politicians plead for more defense spending for the troops with almost as much regularity as they seek more money for other programs. But the Inspector General's latest report and many others preceding it clearly illustrate that much of the Pentagon's funding has nothing to do with the troops' welfare or the readiness of our military services. And um, information on this is, is everywhere. I happen to have in my hand, as, as I'm speaking right now, a rather old book that uh, talked about this. It's from 1996. It was called Take the Rich Off Welfare by Mark Zeppensauer and Arthur Nyman. The very first chapter was Military Waste and Fraud, and it dwarfed all of the other chapters. At that time, they cited the figure of $172 billion a year for waste and fraud in the military, although, it, of course, it might be a great deal higher. To quote from the book, According to a U.S. Senate hearing, $13 billion the Pentagon handed out to weapons contractors between 1985 and 1995 was simply, quote, lost, unquote. Another $15 billion remains unaccounted for because of, quote, financial management troubles, unquote. That's $28 billion right off the top that has simply disappeared. The authors note this is one of those places where we can hardly believe what we're writing, but it's true. And I was amused to note that one of the sources for that excellent book was a humorous <laughs> catalog put together in the 80s titled The Pentagon Catalog by National Lampoon's Henry Beard and Christopher Cerf. This was a rather humorous look at actual defense expenditures, everyday items purchased by the military at, at shall we say, inflated prices. In fact, on the front page of the book, it says, buy this catalog for only $4.95 and get this $2,043 nut for free. And yes, under plastic, a nut was included, the kind of nut you can buy in the hardware store for maybe a nickel. When the military goes to buy such items, they, they sometimes get a little bit inflated. And in fact, the U.S. Senate Committee on Government Affairs and Investigation took a look at some of these expenditures and did find that, yes, the Pentagon was, at least in some instances, paying $2,000 for a nut. In this case, it was a threaded nut that the Navy ordered from McDonald Douglas. In describing this particular item, Henry Beard and Christopher Serve said, now before we talk price, Let's give a moment's thought to what happens if worse comes to worse and this nut fails. You've read about how some huge pieces of expensive equipment fail because of a spare part that cost a nickel. It's mighty embarrassing, particularly when, with a little forethought, that part could have been a little more that part could have had a more respectable price tag. Honestly, which statement would you rather read to a room full of hostile reporters? It went bluey because the 13 cent nut broke, or it suffered dramatically degraded useful operational life owing to the fact that a $2,000 hexaform rotatable surface compression unit underwent catastrophic stress-related shaft detachment. Anyway, some things never change. We don't think the Pentagon's going to, um, to straighten up and fly right. But if we have taxpayers squawk loud enough, maybe, just maybe some of this will get reined in a bit. The book by Zeppensauer and Nyman did note the following. The Strategic Defense Initiative, better known as Star Wars, is another example of this sort of thing. It's extremely expensive. It counters a threat that's virtually non-existent and almost certainly will never work. 
Missile experts are fond of saying that SDI is like, is like trying to deflect a bullet coming at you by hitting it with another, with another bullet. And the Pentagon admitted to faking the results of a Star Wars test it ran back in 1984. They said that they did it to deceive the Soviets, but of course, they also deceived the media and Congress. And yet, right now, we still talk about a missile defense system to protect us from attack from Iranian missiles. Vladimir Putin looks at that and says, that's ridiculous, and he's right. And no, we don't think Vladimir Putin's a great guy. He's a murderer, he's a bully, he's a thug, he's a jerk. But sometimes he's right. He's right about putting defensive missiles in Europe, supposedly to counter a threat from Iran, when really they're to counter a Russian threat. And he's also right about what's going on in Syria. The Department of Defense and CIA are arming so-called moderates trying to overthrow the Assad regime, but apparently the definition of a moderate includes people like ISIS. People got all worked up over the fact that uh, libertarian candidate Gary Johnson made the statement, what's Aleppo? And they were talking about the refugee crisis there. Johnson's remark had people saying that he was even less qualified than Donald Trump to be president. I'm not sure I can agree with that. Mr. Merlin swears that Donald Trump thinks that Aleppo is one of the Marx brothers. Anyway, in making some comments on Facebook recently in defense of Vladimir Putin's policy towards Syria, I had somebody try and jump all over me saying, oh, Putin, the guy that's bombing people that are trying to like rescue people, bombing hospitals, that guy? I wrote back and said, yeah, the guy that realizes that the frying pan is better than the fire, that guy. The person arguing with, with me pointed out that we don't know what the other scenarios might be in Syria, which I countered with, back in 1998, I went solo through Syria using public transport and didn't fear being murdered by jihadists and suggested that if Assad falls, I hope people will go there and report on the scenarios that they do find there in place of the current regime. I got a feeling it won't be pretty. And I don't want to end on that, so I have one brief item to which to end the show with. If you've ever wondered how it is in Mexico City, pre-Cortez Mexico City, they were stuffing their tacos. Evidence has now emerged that even though they didn't have beef or goats or chickens, they did have rabbits. Scientists have long noted that uh, the city of Teotihuacan, which flourished in central Mexico between the first century A.D. and AD 550 or so, had about 100,000 inhabitants. It was the largest urban center in the Americas at the time. But unlike other civilizations, its population didn't appear to have close relationships with animals. Now it seems that cottontails and jackrabbits may have sustained the city as a reliable source of meat and fur. Apparently, researchers from the Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City have uncovered a compound featuring stone rabbit sculpture. Rooms were littered with rabbit bones and obsidian blades for butchering and scraping skins. Furthermore, analysis of these rabbit bones showed that up to 74% of their diet came from human-grown foods rather than wild plants, which also suggests that they were being farmed and butchered. And now you know the rest of the story. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we will see you next week at the same time and probably for a few weeks after that as well.